Most of us grew up in and worship in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church. But there are five Eastern churches in our Catholic Church, which many of us in the West don't know much about, but we should. So Bishop Frank has invited his longtime friend, Core Bishop Michael Thomas, to come and teach us. Core Bishop Michael Thomas is the Vicar General of the Eparchy of St. Maron in the Maronite Rite. This is a fantastic, educational, edifying conversation. So keep your radio right here, 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, or keep us on the phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminaries to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Hey, hey. And uh, today we have a really special guest. This is going to be really cool. Um, hmm? I don't know if you knew this, Excellency, but my my wife Rula grew up in Lebanon. Really? In the Maronite Rite. Really? Yes. And so, and my second son's my second son's middle name is uh, Charbel. He's a great Lebanese saint. Oh, look at so, that! Yeah. Um. So. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so let's... Uh, well, before you introduce the guest, I just want to say this. I think I know our guest for 31 years. Can you imagine since 1991? Is that 31 years? Is my math correct? Wow. Sounds yeah, about right. Yeah, I was right. young. I was happy in those days. Look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're still talking to each exactly. other, so that's good. <laughs> now, please, the intro. <laughs> Yes. So we are very pleased to have on with us today, Core Bishop Michael Thomas. And Core Bishop grew up in Massachusetts. He graduated from Providence College, studied at the Pontifical North American College and the Pontifical Gregorian University, so the Knack and the Greg. Uh, and he received his doctorate of canon law from the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. Core Bishop Michael was uh, ordained a priest on February 11th in 1983 for the Eparchy of St. Maron in Brooklyn, and he was elevated to the rank of Core Bishop on December 12th, 2005 by Cardinal Nasrallah Peter Sefer, who is the Maronite Patriarch of Antioch and all the East. And Core Bishop Michael Thomas also happens to be a Knight of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. Core Bishop Michael, we are so honored to welcome you here today on Let Me Be Frank. Well, thank you for having me. I want to comment on Bishop Frank's uh, comment about him being happy and carefree when he was young. That's not true. He always uh, he always walked around with a scowl. All right, so it was nice having you on the show. <laughs> oh, my but seriously, God. Seriously, thanks for having me. And um I told the Bishop Frank, I don't usually do this, but any chance I have to promote the Eastern Catholic churches, I'd like to take a chance and do that. You know, it, it's so important because I think our people really, even, even the Eastern Catholics know very little about their own churches. Mm -hmm. So I thank mm -hmm. you for this opportunity. No, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, Core Bishop, that you're with us. And just, uh, Steve, and I met the Core Bishop when I was in Rome, obviously, and he was, we were in graduate studies, and he also was, he served, right, in, in the Vatican. You could talk a little bit about your experience on the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, which is what you mm -hmm. had done for a number of years. But I'd ask all our people, uh, What's your faith story? Tell us what you want, to the extent that you're comfortable, about your journey of faith that has gotten you to this point in your life. <clears throat> We're just trying to learn something more about me, I can No, see. I think I know it all, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, first, if I can speak like in generalities, yeah, because please, I think everybody's faith, everybody's faith journey kind of starts up the same way, or at least should. 
you know, we say how we're all created in the image of like and likeness of God, which is why we should treat everyone uh, the same and so on and so forth. But I believe that being created that way leaves inside of us a seed of faith. And that uh, that seed of faith is first watered when we're baptized. The priest pours water on us. And that's the first watering of that seed of faith. And um, at the same time, that's when we get the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which um, are like the nutrients to that seed. So like everybody else, my faith journey started there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like everybody else, it started there because of my parents. Because it's the parents who bring the child to be baptized. Mm-hmm. And as you continue to grow, the parents keep watering that seed and helping it grow. And uh, probably other family members or a priest or in, in my days, we had nuns in teaching in the schools, you know, so the nuns were very influential. But everyone you come in, con- to, uh, in contact to uh, with kind of um, waters that seed and helps that faith to produce good fruit. So that's the beginning of my, my faith story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think when that happens, especially in the case of uh, the priests who help you along the way, we look at them and we kind of uh, revere them in a way, at least we used to, you know. So the parents bring you to church every Sunday and you see this man standing up there praying and looking at you and you're taught that he gives you the body and blood of Christ and you kind of admire that. And I think uh, many young men who, whose parents take them to church regularly, I think they have that same feeling that, wow, look at him, look at what he's doing. So because of that, when you're small, you want to be like them. Mm-hmm. Just like when you see firefighters doing their job, you say, oh, I want to be a fireman. Or, mm-hmm. or you happen to go to a, uh, a doctor's office and you see the doctor and the nurse, oh, I want to be one of them. So that's how my faith journey started. Mm-hmm. And my mother tells a story, Bishop Frank, you've heard it before, that when I was five years old, she took me to the pediatrician, and he was a good Jewish pediatrician. And he asked me, Michael, do you want to be a lawyer like your dad when you grow up? And I said to him, no, I want to be a priest, five years old. Wow. And he said to me, what do you want to be a priest for? And I said, because they only work on Sundays. And there you go. <laughs> now I've been disillusioned. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but Core Bishop, let me ask you, your pastor in your home parish in New Bedford was really a significant influence on your life, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Talk, talk just a tad bit about him. Right. Well, again, I think that reflects somewhat on the parents because uh, my dad being American Lebanese, but had a lot of the old fashioned Lebanese ways instilled in him said that every feast day, Christmas, Easter, and holidays, thank, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving and Fourth of July, we had to invite the priest over. Mm-hmm. So not only would I see that priest on Sunday, but he would always stop by. And he was the kind of priest that uh, was really involved in visiting his parishioners. Mm-hmm. I remember one Thanksgiving telling us he had like seven stops to make, you know. But wow. he made the effort, and we felt like it was part of the family. Right. And it, when we had something and he wasn't, okay, why isn't Father George here? Right. right. So I think that that was really a great, right. great influence. Right. It's, it's the ministry of presence, right? It's not yep. always what you do. It's who you are, right, in the presence. Yeah, which sometimes I think in the modern church, some priests forget. They think that they're, it's just what they're doing on behalf of, which is important. But just being present in the schoolyard or with the school kids or with the religious ed kids or outside of mass or visiting homes makes all the difference sometimes, right? It's true. Yeah, you you know, Bishop, one of the things you may have heard my pet peeve of the priests who uh, are very proud of their hyphenated titles, you know, like uh, priest doctor, priest psychologist, uh, Mm -hmm. priest teacher. I said to me that the best title is that of father because... Mm-hmm. That's what people want, mm-hmm. and that's what led me to the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So now, let's fast forward. We met yep. in Rome at the Casa Santa Maria, and then afterwards you had this position in Rome and legislative text. So explain to the people, what is this 
pontifical council that you were part of? What does it do? I think I'm still trying to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this is an interesting uh, office that I work for. You don't hear much about it. And originally it was called, um, I think, the Office for the Council, because after Vatican II, so many bishops around the world had questions. So they would write to the Office for the Council, and uh, that office would clarify what Vatican II was saying, and it would answer the questions of the bishops around the world. So as Vatican II became um, more well-known and as various commentaries were written and so on, that kind of... That work wasn't really necessary much anymore. So then in 1983, uh, Pope John Paul II came out with a new code of canon law. And that code of canon law was for the Latin Rite Church. And in 1992, he came out with a code for the Eastern churches, the Eastern Catholic churches. So now you have these two new uh, bodies of law that bishops have questions about. Mm-hmm. And so we became known as the Council for Interpretation of Legal Texts. So bishops around the world write to us and say, wait a minute, does this law mean this? Or or can I do that? Or shouldn't we do this? And uh, so that's what we did. It's kind of like what the Supreme Court does here, Uh how it kind of tells you this is what the law really says. Uh And that's what my job Uh was. You know, it's interesting you draw that parallel because here in the United States, you have to litigate to go to the Supreme Court. The Pontifical Council is not necessarily litigation. It's just asking the question, which we don't have in our structure, which maybe we should actually, right? Well, the system of law is different. You know, Mm -hmm. when you use the system of Roman law, so you have a, a, you have, I don't know if you can hear the thunder in the background, but we're having a thunderstorm right now. (laughs) So the, um, the way the Roman law works is you have all these different rules. So it's Mm -hmm. a little clearer than mm-hmm. the system of common law we have in the United States, where mm-hmm. uh, law kind of, um, it, over time, it changes and adapts. Yep, yep. Whereas Roman law doesn't do that. Right. So um, that's why this, the, the whole system's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So then just a last question about this council. So its interpretation is definitive, correct? Well, yes and no. Usually, when we get questions, it doesn't require an interpretation. It usually just requires an explanation. Ah. So, those, so those explanations are definitive in the fact this is what the law says. Right. When there really is a doubt, mm-hmm. then we have to give an interpretation. That has to go to the Pope. And then it's definitive. If he and says then it. once the Pope rules on it, it's definitive. Correct. It. Okay. So now, our topic today is the Eastern Churches uh, of the Catholic Church. So f- let's start from the beginning. When we say the Catholic Church, we're actually mentioning, we're referring to multiple churches in communion with each other around Peter, right? The Catholic Church. So start with that concept. What does that mean? <clears throat> you know, I think it was Pope Leo the Thirteenth who said one time, if you have a garden and you have only one kind of flower in the garden, it will be a very boring, boring garden. And so the Catholic Church can be compared to that garden. And all of the individual churches within it are different flowers. Mm-hmm. So they all make up this one garden under the umbrella, if you will, of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each one of those individual churches, there are uh, 22, uh, 22 in all, each of those churches um, keeps its own traditions, its own customs, but... They are all united, as you say, with Peter and Rome, and they all shared the same uh, basic teachings of the faith, mm-hmm. the same moral teachings and the same dogmatic teachings. So the traditions out of which the churches were formed in the East are as ancient as the traditions in Rome, right? In, in other words, they, they didn't come out of the Latin church. They evolved, no, no. right? So explain that. Most of those, most of those churches, uh, well, not most of them, but many of them are apostolic. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you had uh, Peter who went to Antioch first. Mm-hmm. And if you read Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, it says that's where they were called Christians for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's where the Maronite church comes from. Mm-hmm. And then you have... Um, 
other apostles that went to uh, Alexandria and Egypt. Uh, they went through Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. So you end up having apostolic churches. And, you know, you can read all of those, believe it or not, if you look at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea and then 325, the first ecumenical councils, speaks about these different traditions and these different churches. So, so many of those churches, perhaps even all of them, you could correct me if I'm wrong, have patriarchs as their heads, correct? Well, not all of them have patriarchs, no. Uh, if, if we can just back up a second. Please, sure. I told you there are 22 Eastern churches, okay? Yep. There's one, one Western church, which, which is the, the Roman rite or the Latin rite. But there are five traditions of Eastern churches, and we call those traditions rites. Mm-hmm. And under each rite or in each tradition, there are various churches. So, for example, if you look at the Alexandrian rite or the Alexandrian tradition, Alexandria is in Egypt, as you know, there are three churches. There's the Coptic church, the Ethiopian church, and now recently the Eritrean church. Of those three, one has a patriarch. Coptic church. The Coptic Church. That's right. So then you, the, the other traditions, the Antiochian one, the one I told you the Maronites come from. So that's the Antiochian rite. And in that, there are three churches the Maronites, which I belong to, the Syriac Church, and the Malankar Church in India. Uh-huh. And of those, two of them have patriarchs, the Maronites and the Syriac. And then the third tradition is Armenian. Mm-hmm. There's only one Armenian church. You have the Chaldean tradition which comes out of the, the Iraq region, basically. Mm-hmm. And they have the Chaldean church and the Malabar church, which is also uh, in India. The Chaldean church has a patriarch. And then you have the Byzantine tradition, which many of your faithful may be uh, used mm-hmm. to because they're, the reason being there are 13 different churches under the Byzantine umbrella. You know, you have the Melkites, you have the Hungarians, the Romanians, the Russians, the Ruthenians, there are many of them. Mm-hmm. And out of those, only one has a patriarch, and that's the, the Greek Melkite Church. So the church, and that's interesting. So uh, the patriarchs, because in the in the Latin Church, see, part of the difficulty I think in the average Catholic's understanding is that the Latin Church, the Western Church, is is very big, and one could live their entire life as a Catholic, particularly let's say in the United States, and have very limited, if any, experience of one of the Eastern churches, right? So so there's this presumption, not presumption, there's this error to think that the Latin church is the Catholic church, right? So that is not the case, which is clear, right? But even in the Latin church, there are patriarchs within the Latin church, right? Like we could think of the patriarch of Venice, right? Yeah, but, but those are just honorary titles. Right, so they're different the from what you're describing. Yeah, the patriarch of Venice or the, the patriarch of Lisbon, they're nothing more than archbishops. Right, right. And they're given kind of a title of precedence because of the antiquity of the, of the, their exactly. particular Exactly, right. But so the only patriarch in the Western Church is the Pope. Right. And if you look at his titles, his official titles, one of them is Patriarch of the West. Right. And the interesting thing then is that when we speak of the patriarchs of the Eastern Churches, the ones that do have patriarchs, that they basically, um, what's their relationship with the Holy Father when it comes to governance and law and all the rest? So the patriarchs, we have to, I would like to explain first, they're not like many popes. There's only one pope. Mm-hmm. The patriarch is the head of his church. So the Maronite patriarch is head of the Maronite church. And the official title we give him is father and head. Oh, is that so right? He, yeah, pat, uh, yeah, pater et caput, father oh, wow. and head. And so as the father and head of our church, we look to him as our leader in uh, most matters regarding the discipline of the church. Uh, he, he's the one who proposes the appointments of bishops and so on. But all of the Eastern churches, like I say, are not like having many popes. They're synodal. So what that means is the patriarch calls all his bishops together Mm -hmm. and they make the decisions. And it's the patriarch who puts those decisions into practice. And the best way I can explain it is like in the United States. 
you have the legislative branch of government, and they're the ones who make the laws. And then the executive branch, the president signs those laws and make, puts them into effect. So the patriarchs like the executive branch, and these the bishop and the bishops in the synod are like the legislative branch. So, so was that thunder? Ooh, I, God agreed. Yes. Scott <laughs> is black right now. I don't know we're in the morning. <laughs> wow. So, so this is a great segue, and I'm curious. The Synod on Synodality in the Church, does yeah. it include the Eastern Churches? Yes. It does include the yes, Eastern so, Churches. And again, yes, but I'm not... Um, I have to confess, I haven't been keeping up on the latest developments on mm -hmm. the synod on synodality, but I think it, their definition of synod is different. The, the definition of synod for the Eastern churches, mm -hmm. as is clear in the law promulgated by Pope John Paul II, is that it's a convocation of bishops. Mm -hmm. And those bishops... Uh, actually have, well, as I said, legislative powers, you know. The synod, I think, that they're talking about in Rome is uh, almost a sense, a, a, uh, a meeting on being more consultative, having more voices speak out. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, based on the church's teachings and on the church's tradition, the Holy Father is the one who's a supreme pontiff. He's the one who makes those decisions. Right. Right. So the synod itself, so, so on you, synodality, you doesn't pass legislation. Right. No, you can't limit the authority of the Pope. Now, he, right. as Pope, he can share his authority if you'd like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but you can't limit it. Right. Yeah. Again, it's, it's important for people to re remember the synod, um, when the synods are called, it's the apostolic exhortation or the document that is published by the Holy Father as a result of the synod. That is what would be considered magisterial teaching. That's right. not necessarily what the synod, and I forget what it's called at the end when they come together. It's not actor, but yeah. So, okay, that's, that, that's fairly interesting. All right, so um, let's talk about the Maronite church specifically. Right. I thought that's why you had me on the show. Yes, of course, because a lot of people say, oh, he belongs to the Marianite. I said, no, he's a Marianite. It's a difference. Well, <laughs> all of the Eastern churches, like the Roman church, are either named on uh, the country they're from. So, for example, the Russian church, the Russian Catholic church, obviously has its origins in Russia or on the language tradition they're from. So in the Roman Rite, for example, we call it the Latin Church, not because they still pray in Latin, but that was their uh, language, their liturgical language tradition. Similarly, you have like the Syriac Church because they used Syriac in their tradition and so on. The Maronite Church is unique because we're named after a man. Mm -hmm. We're named after St. Maron, M-A-R-O-N. And St. Maron lived on the plains of Syria, and he was uh, lived in the area of Antioch, okay? And he was a monk, but not the monk in the understanding you know monks today. He was what they call an anchorite. So what, it, what the monks did then is they lived off by themselves. Bishop Frank, you'd like that, I think. Could you imagine me being... <laughs> 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 so they would live off by themselves, and um, they had uh, followers. Mm -hmm. So Marin was an older monk and known for his sanctity and his, um, his sacrifices. He would live in the open air and so on and so forth. So what he would do is on Sundays, actually Saturdays and Sundays, the other monks, the younger ones, would come to see him. He'd instruct them in the faith. Mm -hmm. And on Sunday, they would pray together, have a common meal together, and then go back. So they started to call these monks the followers of St. Maron. And uh, so that's the origin of our church. Maron died in the year 410. Ah, so right before the Council of uh, uh, Chalcedon. Couple, uh, 25 years before the Council of Chalcedon. 
Yeah, 435, which meant yes, he died in the, in, before the Christological controversies were finally settled by the church. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Well, let me, so um, how many members are there in the Maronite church worldwide? Do you know? Oh, that's, that's a good question because, you know, the, the, sea, the home sea is in Lebanon. Uh -huh. And I'll explain that in a bit how we ended up in Lebanon. But, you know, after uh, so much immigration and so on and so forth, probably the minority of Maronites now live in Lebanon. Yeah, because there yeah. are lots of big parishes, Maronite parishes, just in the United States. Yeah, I, I would say altogether we're probably around 3 million, but who knows? Right, right. Well, one of the things that we'll talk about when we come back from the break is Lebanon itself, right? Because you've been there, obviously, and it has gone through, unfortunately, many, many challenges since its glory days, right? And uh, I think our people would very much benefit from hearing some of that, too. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Core Bishop Michael Thomas of the Maronite Rite. He's the Vicar General of the Eparchy of St. Marin, and we will be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. What a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm just taking, I'm not sure if you can see me, I'm taking pages and pages of notes. His Excellency is speaking with Core Bishop Michael Thomas of the Maronite Rite. Um, Excellency. Yeah, well, so keep going with the history of the Maronites. And how did you get into Lebanon? Like, how did you wind up there? Well, that's an interesting thing. What, so what happened is Marin died, and those monks I was telling you about ended up um, coming together and building a little church over his tomb. Mm -hmm. And then they started building their individual little cells around his tomb. Mm -hmm. And within 50 years after Marin's death, they say there were 800 monks living there around the tomb of St. Marin. So with 800 monks there, imagine how many people they were able to serve in the area. So eventually those people became uh, called also uh, followers of St. Marin, as we say in Syriac, Bit Morun, the house of Marin. And so they were all called Maronites. In the end of the seventh century, uh, the Muslims started to invade that area of Antioch. Now, when you're in the plains of Syria, you're a sitting duck. Mm. So what happened is, um, first, the Maronites, you know, we're from the Middle East, they're a little bit stubborn. We ended up staying there. And the, uh, the bishop, the archbishop of Antioch, who was called a patriarch, fled to Constantinople because the emperor there was able to give him uh, refuge, which meant there was no more Catholic patriarch in Antioch. So what they did is the monks of St. Marin got together, and that was a custom in those days, and they elected 
the new Archbishop of Antioch, and it was one of their own. So from the end of the seventh century until today, the, the path, uh, Catholic Patriarch of Antioch is a Maronite. So our, our Patriarch's title is the Patriarch of the Maronite Patriarch of Antioch. That's how that came about. So then what happened is eventually the Maronites were just being slaughtered along with other Christians in the area. So they fled to Lebanon. Now, when I was growing up, you know, kids used to tease us, oh, you guys ride camels and all that, you know. <laughs> but in fact, there are no camels in Lebanon because Lebanon is unlike the rest of the Middle East. It's very mountainous, it's very rocky, and very verdant. You've heard of the cedars of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So the Maronites were able to hide in the hills and forests of Lebanon. And that's how they were able to prosper, and that's how Lebanon became our homeland. And it has been ever since. And has been ever since, despite so many different uh, problems and uh, persecutions. And um, uh, the list just goes on. The biggest persecution was in 1860. And at that time, Syria and Lebanon were under the Ottoman Turks. Mm -hmm. And um, they just slaughtered the Christians, especially the Maronites uh, in Syria and in Lebanon. And it's after that that the mostly Christians started leaving the area and going to places like the United States, South America, uh, the islands, Cuba, and you know that, that area. That's what started the, the early immigration. So, so with the actual um, uh, disciplines of the church, the Maronite church, right? Um, there is a married clergy in the Maronite church within the patriarchate, correct? Yeah, well, as you know from the early church, the, the apostles, we think we're all married, except for uh -huh. St. John, perhaps. But, uh -huh. So, the, we, yeah, we've always had a married clergy. However, the Maronite church was a little bit unique. So, because we're monastic in origin, mm -hmm. the monks never married. Mm-hmm. So technically, our origins did not have a married clergy. There were married clergy in Antioch, but the Maronite monks obviously were not married. So, um, but eventually, as the Maronites ended up really being the only uh, Christians or the only Catholics in the area, mm -hmm. we embraced all the clergy, and among them were married clergy. So, yeah, from the beginning, we have a tradition of married clergy as well. Of course, you, they had to get married before they were ordained deacons. Mm -hmm. Right. Married clergy were forbidden in the West in 1929 because as the immigration grew, so did the number of priests, and it was causing too much confusion. So you'd have married married priests at this Catholic church and a celibate priest at that Catholic church, and the people were really confused. So um, the Holy See forbade married clergy in the United States. And Pope Francis just lifted that recently and within the last uh, 10 years or so. Right. So let's go back to Lebanon. For, for I remember, and I'm, maybe I'm, I'm mistaken here, but I remember you had once described Beirut as the Paris of the East. Is that Was that correct? Yeah, Beirut was a beautiful, beautiful city. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else told me it used to be the espionage capital of the Middle East. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Beirut was a very cosmopolitan city. And um, after World War One, when the French mandate government took over Lebanon, um, then it, it really became very European in its look, as did other places. You know, uh, in fact, uh, Bishop Frank, you and I have been to, to Tunis. And oh, yes. Remember, remember the city, how, how French it was, you know, the, mm -hmm. it was almost like the Champs-Élysées, the way it was designed. So Beirut was a, a big uh, city that was very, very uh, beautiful. And, of course, after the uh, internal strifes that started in 1973, Beirut was kind of destroyed, but it's been rebuilt. It has uh, been. Quite nice. Oh, it has been. Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Good. The, the one thing, oh, first of all, you mentioned Tunisia. What I remember vividly about Tunisia is that camel who spit at me 
very nasty animal, for, just for the record. Okay. Funny that it smiled at me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well. Uh, but, the, but the one thing I do remember also when, when you would describe Beirut, describe Lebanon, is that all the, the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims, in his heyday, kind of very much lived in peace with each other in Lebanon. You right? know, if I can, um, well, you know me, I don't usually hold back in what I say, dear Bishop, <laughs> but uh, very similarly, uh, the, the issue there is like here, it's politics. I'm not so sure it was an issue of confession. In other words, whether you were Christian or um, uh, Muslim, there were 17 or 18 different official confessions in, or sects or religions, if you want to call it, in Lebanon. Many of them lived commonly in various villages. Other villages were strictly Sunni or strictly Shia, but others were strictly Maronite, but so many of them were mixed. And the people continued to live side by side. It's the politicians that caused the problem in Lebanon and some outside forces as well. Mm -hmm. So and is so it still that, true that the president of Lebanon is always a Maronite? Traditionally, yes. And right now there is no president of Lebanon because the parliament's been having an issue in appointing one. But um, I understand there's a candidate in the wings and that, uh, yeah, he, he is married. That's, that's the common tradition. Yes. The common tradition. Now, with all the turmoil, I would presume that the Maronite churches in the diaspora have grown. The parishes have grown. More Maronites have left. So um, where is the largest concentration of Maronites outside of the patriarchate? Like, would they be in Brazil or... or? Yeah, my, my guess is Brazil. <clears throat> is the biggest. And they've been there. They are. Uh, Sao Paulo, I hear, has like a million Maronites living in it, you know. Really? But again, they've been there since... Yeah. Well, they've been there probably since after World War One. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them... They, so a lot of them might be aware of their roots. Mm-hmm. But basically, they grow up. They grew up as uh, mm -hmm. Latin right Brazilians, basically. But I would say Brazil. And if I could just interject one thing, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, they don't like calling us the diaspora. Oh, good. So what are you called? <laughs> it was a big to do. So we're called uh, the countries of expansion. Oh. So how do you like that for political correctness? Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's. I've learned two things today so far. <laughs> wow. Okay, and and then they're yeah. also where, like in Canada, Australia, other parts of Europe. Well, the United States, the United States. Um, yeah, um, Venezuela, Cuba, Colombia, uh, um, Australia. M most of the immigration in Australia, I believe, happened in the late '60s and the, the '70s. But Australia, Sydney. We have five huge parishes in Sydney. Hmm. And I say huge. I mean, they have several masses on a Sunday, and they're all packed. And the churches hold over a 1,000 people. I mean, they're very active. So now you are the vicar general of the eparchy of St. Marin, which yes. is how big? Well, have you ever driven up and down I-95? Mm-hmm. That's, That's your my eparchy. diocese. Right. From Maine, yeah, we use the word eparchy, which is the Greek word for di for uh, diocese, as you know. Mm -hmm. So our eparchy goes from Maine to Florida, and the rest of the country is the other eparchy called Our Lady of Lebanon of Los Angeles. At one time, so it was just one, as you, right? At one time, there was right. just but one. But as you know, Bishop Frank, mm -hmm. uh, Bishop Frank, as you know, sometimes. Uh, our leaders in Rome don't understand the distances in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the poor Syriac Catholic bishop in the United States mm -hmm. is bishop of um, the United States and Canada. Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, Could it, you imagine? it's a difficult situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Right. so I want to highlight a few things, if I may, again, so that people have a, 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 a better sense of how in the communion of the church, there are differences that, that do not divide us, but they are different ways of doing things. So for example, I have three in mind. Um, when I had my ritual faculties, it was quite uh, the, the experience to consecrate in Syriac, 
which is what is done in the Maronite church, which would have been the language Jesus spoke, right? Why don't you speak to that a bit? Mm -hmm. Well, first, maybe we should tell people what my ritual faculties are. Mm -hmm. Please. So I'm a Maronite priest, but I also have permission from Rome to celebrate in the Latin rite or the Roman rite. Mm -hmm. So as such, I can celebrate in two rites, which make me by ritual. Mm -hmm. And Bishop Frank, who was a priest of the Diocese of Brooklyn, and we were friends. And at the time, I was assigned to a parish in New Jersey, in Somerset, New Jersey. And I was alone, and I needed help. So I said, hey, Frank, why don't you learn the rite and get Maronite faculties? And he did. So Rome gave him permission to celebrate uh, the Maronite uh, Mass. So that's what my ritual faculties are. So, um, yeah, I forgot what I was supposed to tell the you. Words about the words of consecration. The words of consecration. Oh, so... Uh, yeah, the consecration, the liturgical language, most of the Eastern churches have a liturgical language. Um, what's unique about our church and the other two churches in the Antiochian tradition, the Melanchars and the Syriac church, is our liturgical language is Syriac, which is a dialect of Aramaic. It, it actually is Aramaic with, with different accent marks, basically. And that's the language that Jesus spoke. So people, oh, didn't Jesus speak Hebrew? You know, he was Jewish. And, no. Since the time of the Babylonian exile, the Jews spoke Aramaic amongst themselves. And they kept Hebrew for parts of their services in the synagogue. So Jesus and the apostles grew up speaking Aramaic. And so the Last Supper was most probably in Aramaic. And the Our Father was taught in Aramaic. And so we call it Syriac. The Syriac is uh, Western Aramaic, basically. And so we maintain that. Also in the Eastern churches, however, and this goes way before Vatican II, we also use the vernacular. So we would mix the liturgical languages, which basically were dying out, and we would mix them with the vernacular so that people would understand. Now in the Maronite church, what we have done is we've kept certain parts of the mass always in Aramaic. And most specifically, the Trisagion, which is the hymn, Holy God, Holy Strong One, Holy Immortal One, Have Mercy on Us, which I think in the Latin rite you use on Good Friday, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And then um, the words of institution and the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the differences between the Latin rite and the Maronite rite, because our calling down of the Holy Spirit comes after the consecration, not before it. Yeah, so um, it's a little bit of a, of a different uh, setup there. But in any case, we do maintain that language. So if you ever hear a Maronite or a Syriac or Malankar uh, church, you can hear the language spoken by Jesus. Right. You know what's interesting, Corbishop, something just clicked in my mind that I had not thought of, but in the readings of Easter, right, which now are concluded, we hear of Christians in the ancient church being baptized. And then the coming down of the Holy Spirit occurred after, right? Which is exactly what you're describing in the liturgical um, form for the Maronite uh, canon, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, um, the our basic differences are spirituality and liturgy. That's what makes our churches unique. Not faith or morals, but that liturgy and mm -hmm. spirituality. So. Um, what, if I can say so, it's hard for us to fathom the coming of the Holy Spirit before the consecration when Jesus' plan of salvation ended with Pentecost. Pentecost didn't come first. Right. You had Jesus' sacrifice first, and then Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming. Right. right. So that's right. the sequence of events. Right. Yep. Th there's another difference that is significant, um, and it has to do with marriage. And you yes. yourself in your doctorate described, if I'm not mistaken, really explored who the minister of the sacrament of marriage is. And it's different in, in, different, of the, in, in different churches within the Catholic Church. So explain that difference, because I think our listeners may be quite surprised. Mm -hmm. Well, the good thing with this now, since my thesis, is they came out with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And so... What was so novel in my thesis became run-of-the-mill when the catechism came out. Because uh, what happens in the Eastern Catholic churches 
is that the priest marries the couple. So in the traditional Latin rite, the priest or the deacon witnesses the two couples marrying each other in the eyes of God. In the Eastern churches, that doesn't happen. The priest marries them. So that's a difference in theology. So uh, that's why deacons can't do marriages in the Eastern churches. The priest has to marry them. And a similar thing with baptism. We give confirmation at baptism. Because as you know, uh, Bishop Frank, in the original church, that's the early church, that was done. It was baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist yep. were all given at once. Mm -hmm. So we still give confirmation at baptism. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the churches, especially in the Byzantine tradition, also give the newly baptized a small piece of the Eucharist. We don't, right. we don't do that in the Maronite church. We wait. We still have a first communion. So it, the confirmation is almost like a chrismation, in a sense. No? It is, it is a chrismation. Yeah. That's it, it, right. it's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. For the information of those listening, too, sometimes when I go to parishes for confirmation, it's not... Um, it's not rare that at the end of the line, there may be one or two or three young people who come forward simply to be acknowledged and have a, a, a simple blessing because they have already been confirmed. They're either Maronite or some other of the Eastern churches. So they go through the process with their classmates for formation, but they already received the sacrament, right? So it's, yeah. it's always interesting. Yeah. And now... So one, one of the other, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, so now my posture, what I've done in, com in confirmation is I'm sitting and the young people kneel in front to ask the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I, of course, I confirm them. But when those individuals come, I stand and give them the blessing because they're already confirmed. It's a very interesting juxtaposing, right? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And and again, in the Eastern churches, it's the priest who gives confirmation, not the Not bishop. the bishop. Ah, yeah. And so, so the priest gives baptism and confirmation. Right. The the chrism oil, however, is mm -hmm. best is blessed by the bishop. And in the Maronite Church, the chrism oil is supposed to be blessed by the patriarch. That's one of his prerogatives. Uh, we were doing that. <laughs> you want to laugh on this one? We were doing that in our church, and I was I became vicar general in two thousand four. So. Every year, the patriarch would send us these gallons of chrism, and we distribute it to our churches. And at one point, uh, the United States customs got too strict and wouldn't let the chrism come through anymore. Oh, because it may be a product, a food product. Who knows? But anyway, so they, um, we ended up, the patriarch gave the bishops in the expansion the permission to bless chrism oil. Yeah, because even, I mean, just the, the logistics in some part, like in yeah. Brazil, and, you know, I mean, to get it there, it would take months. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you can do a lot with DHL, <laughs> but anyway. Right. So now, another question of difference between the Maronites, let's say between the Maronites and the Roman Church, uh, is the distribution of Holy Communion. Yeah, and before I get to Communion, that's one of the things I wanted to say a minute ago, was the kiss of peace. Mm -hmm. When you give the sign of peace... So in, the, uh, in all the Eastern churches, when we give the sign of peace, we give it before consecration, before we offer the Son to the Father. And the reason is pretty simple, because Scripture tells us mm -hmm. that before you offer sacrifice, go and make peace with your neighbor, then come back and offer sacrifice. And so that's why uh, in the Eastern churches we do the sign of peace before Right. And in the Maronite Church, as you know, it's done in silence. Uh, it's kind of passed down from the servers to the people in the pews, and right, hand yeah, in hand, like, right, hand in hand. That's right. right. And so it, it's not really, no offense, but it's not really like a free for all. Like, hey, how you doing? It's more of a, a right. solemn gesture. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. But just just as an aside, I I, I remember that there was talk in Rome when Pope Benedict was still in office. Correct. That he wanted to study that question of the sign of peace. Yes. And moving it in the Latin church to exactly That's that, correct. right, at the offertory, which would make yep. sense. It does make sense there because the liturgy of the word is over, you're preparing the altar, and then you begin the liturgy of the Eucharist. That would make sense. <laughs> I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think... Uh, it, uh, the neocatechumens do yes. that. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yep. 
Absolutely. Yep. And the, and the other major difference, as you were going to mention, is communion we give by intinction. So, so that what is, is that? We, we, so we dip the host into the chalice. So basically the people are receiving the body and blood of Christ under both species, under the bread and wine, and we dip it and put it in the person's mouth. In some of the Byzantine churches, they actually use a spoon. Mm -hmm. They mix the host and wine, and then they kind of throw it in the person's mouth with the spoon. Um, but, you know, maybe for the Latin Rite Catholics in the United States, that's strange. But you might know, uh, Bishop Frank, in Italy, for example, when you give under both species, it was common to give by intention. Yes. The yes. Italian bishops had voted that years ago. Yes. So, uh -huh. uh, yeah, so that's how we give communion. Yeah. In fact, it's the bishops of the United States that voted not to have intention. In the, in the country, because I think in other parts of the world, it is an option. Yeah. Uh, and of course, COVID, it, it became standard practice for clergy who were celebrating mass together because you, you didn't right. drink from the cup with COVID. And now I think it's kind of stuck, right? Yeah. A lot of places continue to do that. Um, anything else comes to mind? Any of the liturgical differences? I think people would find this well, quite I, fascinating. I think those are the basic uh, things we use incense at every mass, even on weekdays. Lots of them, lots of incense. <laughs> Lot. If you're asthmatic, sit in the back of the church, just as a warning. Right. Or as one poor woman does in my church, she takes a scarf and puts it over her face. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's one of the main differences. Um, the, the as you know, the form of the vestments are a little different. Mm -hmm. All the priests wear uh, basically. Uh, uh, an alb, everybody wears an alb, and a stole around our necks. Stole's made different, but it's still a stole. The cincture, which is the rope you wear on your cars, is like a belt. So mm -hmm. uh, the vestments are the same, but different forms. Right. 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 So, um, so that's a little bit different. We're just about, we just, our time is almost over. I just have one last question. And this is something that, you know, we all share in common. And that is, we want to engage our young people in the life of the church, right? Because the Maronites have such a distinct culture and liturgical tradition, and because it is a small group within the church, which could be advantageous, right? Because you have to kind of stick together and keep, how do you, how do you find the young people in the Maronite parishes in the eparchy? Are they engaged? Do they stay engaged? Do they, is it as bad as sometimes you see in the Latin church or what do you see? Well, I, the, the Maronite Church is not exempt from the cultural norms that are happening all everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we, we have young people leaving the church as like everywhere else. But um, thanks to Archbishop Zayek, who back in the 60s mm -hmm. really started pushing parishes to have CYOs, which we call MYOs, which Maronite Youth. <laughs> same thing. Yeah. So, and uh, part of Archbishop Zayek's theory then was, if we're not going to give them confirmation when they're 12 or 13 years old, we have to have something for them. Mm -hmm. And he started pushing for these, uh, what we call regional workshops, where different Maronite churches in a particular area would all get together and the kids would come together and, and it'd be kind of like a, a camp and a workshop at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's worked pretty well. And it's from them, the, those teenagers, that they formed what they called a, a young adult. So we also have an MYA, Maronite Young Adults, because they didn't want to leave their friends once they went mm -hmm, to college. Mm -hmm. And now that's much easier because of social media. Mm -hmm. So they all keep in contact. So that's been really good. And most of our parishes do have good MYOs and good MYAs. And that's been a big help. That's great. That's great. And the yeah. whole idea of regional cooperation is exactly, as you know, we've talked offline, what I'm trying to instill in the diocese here, that parishes should work together to engage young people, not try to do it just on their own. Yeah, that's a big help. And yeah. another thing is to make a full circle was when we started is because we're a little smaller, you know, I know all the kids by name uh -huh. and that's a help. Oh, what I do. So, you know, when, when the, yeah, when they know the priest and the, even from when they're younger, that, that's a very big help. Yeah, absolutely. And before we go, can we can we talk about one thing about St. Charbel? Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. You know, so people ask about saints. Well, obviously, all the saints of the Catholic Church are saints of all the church. So we all have the same saints. 
but Lebanon has a few particular saints. And St. Charbel stands out because he's well-known everywhere. Mm -hmm. I had a Polish couple, being in Fort Lauderdale, I get a lot of people from the cruise ships who come to Mass here. They don't realize the difference in the right until they walk into the doors. <laughs> but but um, I had this Polish couple last summer, and they saw the window of St. Charbel. They didn't know any English, nothing. And all I heard the ladies, oh, Charbel, Charbel. So I said, my goodness, he's, he's known in Poland. Um, I know there's a shrine to St. Charbel in the Basilica of Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I get calls and emails from people all over the place asking for holy oil from St. Charbel's tomb. This saint was beatified by Pope Paul VI at the end of Vatican II. Mm -hmm. So all the bishops of the world were there. That was a big help. And he was canonized in 1977. And for some reason, and I use the word cult in a respectful way, but the cult of this saint mm -hmm. has reached everywhere around the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm proud to claim him as one of ours because mm -hmm. he was a Maronite monk who mm -hmm. died at the end of the 19th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. so there are other, but all of our saints in recent times, like in the Latin Church, are all canonized by, by the Pope in Rome. Right. You know what, Corp Bishop, maybe one day, I'll, if you're interested, come back and let's talk about the saints of the Eastern churches, because I've done a few podcasts about the saints, you know, that are, I'm going to call of the Latin church, you know, but there are a whole slew and a lot of them are martyrs in Eastern churches that I think our, yeah. our listeners would find really very interesting, very helpful to hear about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Pleasure. So let's take uh, our, our last break. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency has been speaking with Core Bishop Michael Thomas of the Maronite Rite, the Vicar General of the Eparchy of St. Marin. We'll be right back with a listener question. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency and core bishop, I bet you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. Here's the question that came in this week. It says, what's your favorite type of macaroni as it's called in our house, or pasta to yes, others. Yes, is that funny? Well, it, it, this is this is a very sublime question, just for starters, okay? <laughs> and it has all to do with shape and not form. It's because my little great nephew does not eat certain pasta because he thinks it tastes different. In fact, they all taste the same because they made this. It's just the shape, right? Generally speaking, right? Generally speaking. Although the core bishop is also an expert, having lived in Italy many years, right? Anyway, my favorite macaroni is ziti. Simple. The sauce goes in. It's it's just a very simple fare for a simple guy. That's my favorite. But I'll eat anything. What? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I, I would love to turn this to Corbisha yes, as well. Since yes, tell me. Yes, you so can long. answer too. Rigatoni. Ah, there you go. Simple. We're simple guys. Simple people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> rigatoni la carbonara. You can't beat it. <laughs> oh gosh! Now I'm getting hungry. Lord, now I'm going to start grumbling. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start grumbling. <laughs> Uh, all right. So if you have a, a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. You can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Core Bishop Michael Thomas, thank you again for being here with us. Okay, thanks for having um, me. Yeah, well, it's truly an honor. No, Core Bishop, thank you. It was it's fascinating. And I think it's even for me personally to be reminded of some of this gives me such a deeper appreciation of what it means to be truly a Catholic, right? And the great, the beauty of our church, which most people forget. Anyway, and hopefully I'll see you in Florida. And, and, 
sooner or later. <laughs> and Corp Bishop, you had you had a website that you said people who wanted to learn more. Yeah, we have an Aparkil website. It's very simple. Saint Marin. That's S T Marin M A R O N. Saint Marin org, and um, it's our Aparkil website. And there are so many links on it that uh, could be very helpful to you. Tremendous. Awesome. Awesome. Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Well, you know, I'm going to defer to Corp Bishop Michael. If you would give us your blessing, please. Oh, my goodness. So you should have told me that before. I would have been prepared. This way, it's, <laughs> it, otherwise, we don't want a huge blessing. We just want a blessing. <laughs> May the blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ come down from heaven and accompany us in all of our works and all of our studies and in all of our activities of the day. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one Amen. true God. Amen. Well said. Thank Amen. you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for being on the podcast. Steve, I'll see you next week. Thank see you, Excellency. Thank you, Corp Bishop.